the good, the bad, and the ugly of a million-dollar portfolio. Sometimes to really understand something, it helps to step away from pure theory, roll up your sleeves, look closely at a concrete example, and then come back full circle to the theory. Today, we do that with a million-dollar portfolio that none of us designed or built. We look at the underlying building blocks of the portfolio, both what is included and what's missing, and what this construction tells us about what the portfolio designers must believe about investment, or at least the risks that they appear willing to take with their client's portfolio. We also look at the different kinds of risks the portfolio embodies and discuss some of the circumstances under which some of these risks could come back to bite the client. Now, this isn't just a bash session. We identify what we find praiseworthy. But when we see something that seems questionable or, well, downright ugly, we identify that too. Throughout this discussion, we sprinkle in stories of other portfolios we've examined, client interactions we've had along the way, and lessons we've drawn from both of those. And where your co-hosts disagree, we don't hesitate to explain what and why. All this is with a view to help you be a more informed, disciplined, and peaceful investor and to help you make sure your portfolio is going to help you get where you're trying to go. So stay tuned as we discuss all this and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Lungani. Here, as always, with Eric Olson and Adrian Nicholson, we've got a great episode for you today where Eric and I are going to review a hypothetical portfolio. Now, as always, it is hypothetical. We've made some adjustments, but it is based on uh, a situation that Eric encountered recently. So we've made some adjustments to it. Uh, Here's why I think this is so important for you to listen to. First, if you're constructing your own portfolio, This gives you some ideas on how you can think about and construct your own portfolio. Second, it'll give you uh, the idea of how we construct the portfolios, and it'll show you how they're going to be different as uh, is uh, a staple on our shows. We we don't discuss how we construct a portfolio with one another in advance. So I think we'll get some surprises that the other one wouldn't see. And the point is, Uh, it's not wrong or right. It's just a different way of approaching it that we as advisors over time have become comfortable with. And so you as a listener, if you've got something different or a different approach, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it it is comfortable for you. Although I imagine you'll hear both of us talk about things like um, uh, rules-based risk control, things like that, that we would advise even for your your strategy. So uh, Adrian has volunteered today to moderate because uh, he just imagines Eric, imagines that Eric and I will be arguing with one another, <laughs> as we tend to do occasionally. Uh, Adrian, are you are you ready for this battle? Yeah, I'm, I'm always ready. I mean, I feel like I'm justified because there's been episodes where 
you and Eric are just doing so much back and forth. I'm like, oh, this is going to be the podcast where the band breaks up. This, this is going to be at their, they're, they're having such a heated <laughs> debate right now on this investment topic. This is going to be the, the turning point, but it's, it's, yeah, well, it's all good. I mean, it's really great just to kind of hear both perspectives, not just, you know, just agreeing all the time, especially when it comes to reviewing a, a, a million dollar portfolio. I'm sure there's going to be some differences. I'm sure there's going to be some similarities and, that's just all going to be good content to really learn how people build their overall portfolio. So I'm looking forward to it. But again, let's let's be as friendly as possible. But let's also just be as uh, just let's all just respect everybody's perspective here. So I'm excited for it as always. Well, I've pre-written my apology letter, so I, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I've got to do that. I, I uh, luckily Eric's hours away, so he wasn't. Um, outside my office ready to beat me up after I told him he could jump off a bridge <laughs> on that one episode. <laughs> it was a statistical-based comment, not a personal comment. <laughs> but let's, right. let's jump right into it. So, Eric, since you're from, um, m- more familiar with the, uh, the uh, story it's based upon, uh, and Eric sent me some information, but I did have some questions, and I think the questions will also uh, help for those who build a portfolio. So Eric, the first question I had for you is, is this portfolio in a taxable account or is this a qualified portfolio, meaning it's either in a uh, traditional IRA or is it a Roth IRA or is this a mix? It's, tr- it's entirely in a traditional IRA or rollover IRA, functionally the same. So it's all tax deferred. All tax deferred. So, and actually, I approached it uh, to me, not knowing the answer. The more conservative thing was to assume it's taxable, just because I feel like that uh, makes me focus on limiting the tax consequences. So it would change my allocation slightly that I that I've prepared, but not not huge. The second question that I have when I looked at this was, um, uh, what is the client's risk tolerance? Well, so far the client hasn't uh, revealed that to me, so it's um, I, it's like anybody's guess. But I'm gonna we can assume, I suppose, in this instance, that the client is moderate aggressive because uh, for the vast majority of his expenses, they are covered by guaranteed income from a pension, and so there really hasn't been any drawdowns on this. So as far as he's concerned, the the point of this portfolio is to grow. So Eric, I'm sure you asked him about risk tolerance. Well, it wasn't that long of a conversation. Really? So it was, mm-hmm, it was basically understanding what he wanted, what kinds of technical answers he wanted, what kinds of planning and retirement income answers he wanted. But we didn't really dig into the investment discussion yet. So I said, well, in preparation for a meeting, I'll go ahead and take a look if you'd like at your existing portfolio and then come prepared with some comments about it. Yeah, so uh, for those of you listening, the portfolio um, that we're talking about, and, and well, first, risk tolerance is very important when you're designing the portfolio. And very often, I'd probably say more often than not, people's risk tolerance uh, and their portfolio are not aligned. And it could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe it was their risk tolerance in the past, it isn't now. I recently just started working with a client whose uh, husband passed away and he picked all the investments. So his risk tolerance uh, appears to be different from hers, but I'm still uh, asking questions to determine if that's the case. So, that, so risk tolerance is very important to uh, figure out at the beginning. 
The second thing worth noting, uh, Eric said he would assume the client's moderately aggressive. I made the same assumption, and that's because this portfolio is roughly 80% in uh, U.S. stocks, 5% in cash, and uh, 15% in bonds. So that's why when we look at it, we had said it's, it's um, moderately aggressive. So Eric, you, if, when you looked at this portfolio and you said, okay, there's, there, it's moderately aggressive, I'm going to review the portfolio and come up with some comments. Uh, where did you start? Will you share some of those comments? Well, actually, I started where you started just now, Roshan, which was to look at the composition of the portfolio before getting underneath the hood and doing an x-ray on it. I'm looking at it at a big macro level, 80% of the portfolio is in U.S. stocks, as you said, and then the other 20% in fixed income and cash. Uh, I've, I would I will just say, if we're using the framework of the good, bad, and ugly framework, uh, that part's the, that's definitely fits in my ugly category because there's really nothing else. And even f further, as you undoubtedly saw as well, it's overwhelmingly concentrated in large cap growth and large cap blend US. 65% of the portfolio or so is in that, in the 60%, let's say, is in that category, which doesn't really speak, uh, you know, those, that's not the sort of thinking that I have at least about what constitutes diversification. How about you? Well, you know, I, so I, after looking at the risk tolerance piece that, that we mentioned, looking at the overall portfolio, I went then to how efficient is the portfolio and I went straight to uh, risk uh, and return. So in this specific situation, uh, and Eric and I are looking at a um, Morningstar analysis of the portfolio, and they've got a section under risk analysis where they compare the portfolio's risk and return to the, um, to the S&P 500. And what's, what's interesting is my next step would have been exactly where you looked at as, as far as the components of the portfolio, but the risk and return statistics already told me what what you had said and what i mean by that is you had said overweight in in large cap large cap growth i did see already was u.s stocks but then when i look at the portfolio statistics it is over three years at uh time frame a five-year time frame and a 10-year time frame performing very very similar to the s p 500 which is the benchmark we're using so that then would would say there there's probably uh, diversification lacking if you're if you're pretty much right in line um, right in line with that. Right. In fact, just to your point, if you essentially took, I would say, if you took the S and P five hundred index fund, and you then put eighty uh, percent of the portfolio in that, and you took another twenty percent and you put it into an aggregate bond fund, you'd have about the same performance over this time period and about the same diversification, actually probably slightly more diversification. Yeah, I did that, uh, I did that exact review uh, that you just described, looking at this portfolio and, and saying, okay, this is moderately aggressive. We've talked about our approaches before, so for those of you that are consistent listeners to the, um, to the podcast, you'll know that I've got multiple strategies and whenever I'm doing a comparison, 
I actually compare it to my least complicated strategy. And the reason I say least complicated is because it has the less amount of movement and it, it's really high diversification, uh, lower um, active adjustments. So to me, it makes it a cleaner comparison. So when I did that, which is pretty much exactly what you described, which is um, uh, 80% S&P and 20% into the bond specifically, I'm looking at the, uh, the uh, treasuries, I'm able to cut the risk down in both three, five and uh, 10 year. I'm able to get better performance on the 10 year over five. I am uh, underperforming by about 0.8%. And over three, I'm underperforming by 0.4. So once again, uh, and using the, uh, I'm going to use the five-year because that's sort of the work puts my approach in the worst light compared to it. The question I'd ask the client is, is that lower return worth it for cutting your risk down by roughly a third? So in all, in the in that five-year time frame, I'm looking at a third less risk in this portfolio. In the um, and that's pretty much the same for the three-year and it, it for the 10 years so it's a, roughly a third less risk overall longer term actually better performance and uh shorter term you are giving up for that third loss of risk you're giving up like half a percent in return so that's a conversation i'd have with the client is is the lower risk worth the drop in the slight drop in return and i say slight drop in return because to me a third drop in risk and it's um because i'm using a percentage uh, basis. Uh, it's a third drop in return and uh, I'm sorry, a third drop in risk and a and a 5% drop in return. Right. So I'm going to repeat that because that's very confusing. It's it's it. The actual numerical decline in return is 0.8% annually. 0.8% divided by the actual portfolio return is where the 5% number comes in. And when I'm saying a third less risk, I'm looking at the standard deviation and the, the risk we're taking is literally one third of, um, uh, sorry, two thirds of what the portfolio risk was. So let me make two comments in response to what you just said there, Roshan. So the first is to make a distinction between one's accumulation phase in their lives and one's distribution phase. And so uh, I would as people may have heard us say before, during the accumulation phase, volatility in the portfolio is uncomfortable, but it's not consequential in the sense that if you don't re react to it adversely without a fear, uh, you're the long, if you just allow the portfolio to compound its growth, despite its volatility, you'll wind up with the same result as if you had a lower volatility portfolio with the same growth rate. In other words, the volatility isn't a factor in, in the purest sense, only the growth rate is. But during the distribution phase, the volatility of the portfolio absolutely is consequential, not merely for how you feel about it, but also how long your portfolio may last. Because if you're pulling money out during downturns in order to continue to put the, a sort of consistent paycheck or recreate essentially a, a consistent paycheck. If you do that during those downturns, you're having to sell more shares of what you might have sold, you know, six months, a year, a year and a half before, fewer shares in order to generate the same dollars for your lifestyle. So when you, Roshan, are talking about that volatility, I think it's it's really important for people to understand that's not just an idle criticism. 
it ha- it's a material criticism, at least if we learn from the client that his intention is to begin drawing from the portfolio. So far, not the case, but that doesn't mean that he, his intent never is to do so. So I, anyway, that's, that's number one. The second thing I'd say is, is that even if we were speaking about this in the accumulation phase, there's an, important, there's an important element of the emotional response to that portfolio, where in Roshan's case, if Roshan is saying to a client, look, I can lower the, the return ever so slightly, but in exchange for that, we'll buy a much lower volatility level what that permits is for Roshan to then shift the composition more in the direction of the higher volatility, higher growth assets, and still, and while the in in the purest sense, it won't be it won't look identical to in in terms of its composition of stock versus bond. Let's say, it, nevertheless, if he can say, I'm going to try to target the same volatility, dialing it up on the growth side, he'll he can have essentially target the volatility and wind up with a with a higher long-term expected growth rate well so eric i i will actually this is the first point we might need adrian's help on okay (laughs) uh, i like a lot of what you said however i do think the volatility makes a difference in the accumulation phase as well okay and here here's why why i'll tell you this is the example Mm -hmm. the simple example i i always I always use, I think average rates of returns can, can be misleading. And uh, the reason I say that, here's my simple example. I've used it before. So for those of you listening, uh, let's say you start out with $100. Market goes down after one year, it's down to $50. You just had a 50% loss. The following year, it goes back up to $100. You had a 100% gain. Well, when I'm looking at your two-year average return, it says you're making 25% a year right? You had a 50% loss followed by a hundred percent gain. You divide that by two. That's a 20. So it's the, the average return is saying you make 25% a year. Hey, I'm doing a great job managing your money, but you have the same $100 you started with. So to me, looking at that volatility, uh, where I do agree with you, the volatility is less important. I think you've got to review it to make sure that these average rates of return are valid averages to use. Okay, and that's an excellent point. Here's the, di- here's the difference in terms of the language maybe then that we're using. You're using the concept of average rate of return and I find that because of the problem that you just mentioned, not a useful statistic. So instead, what I look at is the compound annual growth rate which in, takes into account that I started at 100, I went down to 50, I went back up to 100. In that particular case, the point to point was zero. And so if you take the compound average growth rate, it is a zero annualized return over the arc of the, the course of those two years. Yes, correct. Well, but the statistics we were looking at and discussing right now, those risk statistics over three, five, and 10 year, that's not a compounded average. That's an average I'm pretty rate of return. Sure I'm pretty sure it's compound. Um, and if uh, I'm just going to glance over here uh, to the, I mean, w- maybe we, uh, maybe I've misunderstood this, but the, um, my understanding is, is that the compound return is what they're looking for in those risk statistics. Your, your argument is, is no, it's average. Pretty returns. sure they're using the average rate of return, but you and I can figure that out, uh, that okay. out after and continue. If that is compound they're using, then I will take my, uh, argument away 
from you. <laughs> if it is okay. average that they're using, I let it stand. <laughs> All right. Well, we, 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 irrespective of which they are using, I think we both are in complete agreement that average is misleading, compound is not. And measuring the, the compound growth, uh, that in that case, then volatility during the accumulation phase is in, in irrelevant, except for at the emotional level. Would we agree on that? And I also want to move us to, I think this is an interesting uh, section, too, that kind of goes to a point that you were bringing up, Roshan. It was the best slash worst time periods for the portfolio. So what do you think about for the worst for a three-month time period? The worst performance was a negative 15%. The worst for a one-year performance was negative 4% for the portfolio. The worst on a three-year time period was 5.7%. So, and then I'll, I'll, I'll move on to the best uh, time period, but what do you think about those numbers for the overall portfolio? Was that something concerning that you saw? Was that something compared to other portfolios that looked um, within line? What was your kind of take on both of that for you two? I can, I can start, off, uh, start us off with that one. I, I look at the worst. Uh, uh, I'm more concerned about the worst than I am uh, the best in this case. But the, that data point to me, I don't think was very useful. Just, I didn't spend too much time on it, but I think some of these holdings in the portfolio or this analysis didn't include the 2008 market decline. So for that reason, we're only looking at, at a pretty good time period. So it's, uh, the worst wasn't that useful. What gave that away to me, by the way, uh, by the way, in this portfolio is when it looks at the worst percentage, it's, it's using April 19 to March 20. Whereas if you look at older portfolios, uh, and this is the worst one year, um, when you look at other portfolios for the worst time period, you're going to get 08 to 09, March 08 to February of 09. So I just don't know how how useful this is. Um, Eric, let me ask you some of these uh, positions, uh, specifically, I think it's one of the um, uh, separately managed accounts. They just weren't around in 08. Is that correct? So the, the analysis couldn't go back that far? Uh, well, it didn't. This particular tool only looks back 10 years. So even if it had been, uh, even if it had not been around in 2008, this wouldn't, this wouldn't evaluate it. Every one of these has been around since at least uh, June 30th of 2011, which permits it then to have a 10 year look from June 30th of 2011 to June 30th of 2021. Okay, yeah, so, so, so Adrian, I think it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I definitely look at this when we're analyzing a portfolio. I think the data we have just isn't, doesn't go back far enough to make the response that useful. Yeah, and I think that is important too. If you like take this back 10 years, again, going back to, to kind of like the risk tolerance uh, like section that we talked about, and also like the accumulation and distribution phases, this could be um, a really interesting section where let's just say you're, you're looking at like your portfolio and how it performed in 2008 and it had like a 30, 35% decline. That could really highlight are you, would you be comfortable? Can you? I think that's the topic where we talk about risk capacity. Are you able to sustain that kind of a loss that this was like a really important year where you're going to be drawing from your portfolio? So kind of looking at kind of the extremes is could be really beneficial to, can, to see how you can hold up in certain time periods. 
very important, especially going back to what Eric said. If you're in the distribution phase, um, you can't take a, uh, I, I shouldn't say you, the majority of people that I work with in their distribution phase, that kind of loss, like a 30% loss in 08 or 09, that could be devastating. I actually, um, and that, that's a loss number, but uh, to make another, another point, I, I know someone who retired in 2000 and in, between 2000 and 2010, because of the crash, the markets were flat and they didn't take a major loss, but they just didn't have much growth in that decade. And that caused them to, you know, 10 years later, have to make cutbacks in what they're doing. So it's not only could the loss be devastating in terms of not having enough, but even if you don't have um, some sort of gain for an extended period of time, even if it's minimal, it can it can cause you to have to adjust your lifestyle in retirement. And that's what uh, our job is to try to make sure you don't have to adjust your lifestyle. Or if that's something that's impending, we know about it you know, a decade in advance versus being surprised after a uh, flat decade in the market or after a big uh, market drop. Yeah, so I guess I will, you're listening to you uh, reflect back on those periods of time. I think I, I am thinking again of another story of a fellow who retired from, I believe it was uh, one, of the, one of the tech companies, and he retired in late uh, 1999, early 2000, just on the cusp of the downturn, and he had to go back to work in 2003 and has been working since as a result of that downturn. So I, I guess I would say we, we've been speaking about these as, as binary categories. You're in the accumulation phase or you're in the distribution phase. The truth is, is that some people have so much guaranteed income from pensions or social security that in effect, they may have a lot more control over when they decide to access their portfolio for distributions. And then again, in some ways, it has more of the characteristics of an accumulation portfolio. Yes. And Adrian, I think it was the last one where you kept uh, mentioning how everyone's situation is different. Our last episode of the one, but one before we were teasing you at the end uh, for it. But uh, I think that's a perfect line here, too, because uh, like I have a I have a client where I refer to her assets as her endowment fund because she has enough in assets. It's going to outlive her life and she can shift how she's investing because of that. Right. Where I have uh, uh, other clients who just have enough to make it through their lifestyle. So we've got to make sure we are uh, even more cautious than than the the average person in this in this situation. So we've you, you definitely need to. And so this case, Eric, you had said they have enough coming in from pensions and so on for their for their income, which sounds sounds good, meaning today they don't need the portfolio. My question, though, is even when you consider inflation, is that still the case? Do they theoretically never need these assets when you run their uh, run their plan? Or is it today they don't need their assets? But because pensions typically don't grow at the rate of inflation, they'll need to start taking money later. Uh, this client's pension, I believe, is inflation adjusting on a strict 3% per year basis. Okay. And so you're, you're correct. It's, well, it's been ahead of, the, it's been ahead of schedule uh, until this year. Now it's starting to fall a little bit behind schedule. So that, those are all excellent points. And by the way, it is, you know, the little backstory here is that the client had elected to take a distribution for some home improvement uh, about a year ago. So 
it's or earlier actually this very same year. So it's not as though there are never distributions taken. It's just elective um, when when the client does that for now. But, I, but at seventy two, you've got uh, the required, required minimum, minimum distribution. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's really true. And so one of the things that we'll be talking with this client about is that same story that we've talked about so much before is the whether it makes sense during this window to do Roth conversions. Yeah, and you know, I, I got one other story I just wanna share back into from, from 2000, where just because we're talking about risk and so on, there was a couple uh, that I actually never stopped started working with. What, happen, what, what happened was I met them at roughly the bottom of the tech bubble crash. And uh, in this couple, their household division of labor, the wife handled the investments forever. Uh, roughly in in um, 99, the husband's hearing from his buddies how much money they're making in the investments, and he's not making as much. The wife's got a diversified portfolio. He's talking to his buddies about their tech stocks. He decides to take over almost a year before, and then they get absolutely crushed. And the, the impact that, that this happened to them, uh, I guess the moral of this story first for me is... Uh, is uh, just because your buddies are talking about what they're making at a party. I, people talk about their wins at the time. I, I've got a friend that, that is a uh, gambler at a casino. I hear about his wins all the time. I only hear, hear about his losses when I talk to his wife about how much he wins. So, <laughs> so that's the first thing I'll say with that. The second lesson with this, though, is the outcome of this was they were playing to retire in 2000. The losses were so severe with whatever shifts he made in the portfolio, where at that time when we met at the bottom, he would have to work for another 10 years. And the reason we we uh, stopped, we, we'd never started working together is my last meeting with them was a phone call. Halfway through the phone call, when I went through the numbers, they were so distraught, they just couldn't keep talking. They just said, we've got to go. Um, and uh, I never had a call with them after after that. So hopefully they recovered. The markets did recover, and they're they're doing okay now. But that's just a story about risk, about friends' numbers at parties, and about making sure you have a plan. That's a that's a great story, though, Roshan. And I kind of want to bring us back to because your story kind of maybe highlights a section here on the Morning Star Report. And I'm not sure if you two spent some time on this, but I thought this was an interesting section. It was kind of how the portfolio was broken down in different uh, sectors. And it was pretty much in line with the S&P 500, where 24% of the portfolio, let's round it up to 25% of the portfolio, was in defensive stocks. Um, 46 was in sensitive uh, stocks. And around 30% was in cyclical stocks. And I know this probably has to do, again, with the individual. Everybody's different, different time horizons. I can just think of like, Two extremes where I have a buddy of mine who's probably almost like 90% in the sen sensitive section where he has a lot of technology. So he'd be very um, overweight in that section, but he has a long time till he retires and he's pretty young. And I know this person that's very old. And if I bet if we ran this uh, analysis, a majority of their portfolio would be in this defensive section where it would be more overweight in that section. So if we're kind of using this kind of umbrella of the good, bad, and ugly, when you saw this, was this like a good? Was this bad? Was this worse? Or, I mean, it was in line with the S&P 500. So what was kind of your take on how this was broken down in different sectors? So I didn't actually look at the sector uh, piece uh, until you mentioned. I did look at the holding list 
which gave me an idea of that. And I looked at the performance, which basically a thought I did have looking at their numbers uh, is, um, does it make sense to just own the S&P versus what you own? Yeah, long-term performance is actually better uh, with the S&P. The uh, risk on a um, three, five, and 10-year time frame is pretty much the same. So I, I didn't look at the, the actual sector breakdown, but I, I'm not at all surprised when you go through the numbers that they were pretty close to the, uh, to the index. Yeah, so I was looking at the sector breakdown. And so it, it, using the good, bad, ugly categorization scheme, I thought that was good because it, they were pretty loaded up on some, some tech stocks. And so I commend the, the portfolio managers here for attempting to offset some of that in, in terms of their largest concentrated positions. For example, they own nearly 4% of this portfolio is in Microsoft. And by the way, that's, you know, it could be 10%. So I would say it's a credit to them that they don't have any single position at an underlying level uh, concentrated at a more than 4% level. And that, by the way, is the, the Microsoft position in this portfolio is uh, something of an exception there. You whittle down, you've got some Facebook and you have some Alphabet and you have some other things that are fairly big positions within the portfolio as a whole. But the fact that they did reach out and try to get into some of those other sectors, I thought was, you know, a credit to these managers. And by the way, I just want to point out to our listeners that, especially if you're not a client yet, and you said, hey, we'd like you to take a look at our portfolio, it's not going to be just a bash session. We want to acknowledge when there are good things that are being done in the portfolio as a whole. In fact, I'll just cite another good thing or two here. The, the, I thought it was wise of these existing portfolio managers to have, it for the bond position, as small as it is, you know, 20%, and, and that may be perfectly appropriate for this particular client. I'm saying bonds and cash. I thought they were wise to have uh, tilted the bond portfolio toward relatively higher quality and shorter duration. By shorter duration, I mean the, these... The duration is somewhat related to the notion of maturities. It's slightly different. I won't get into the difference right now, but let's say it's about a three and a half year duration on these bonds. And that protects those bonds from, or let me restate that. What that does is it makes them less sensitive to adverse changes in interest rates. Higher increased rates are, 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 will do less to, to um, punish the price of short-term bonds then that same increase in interest rates would do to punish long duration bonds. So in this case, it appeared that they were preparing for the possibility of a, of a gradual rise in interest rates and, uh, and as a result, protecting the portfolio from declines in the bond portion of the portfolio. So that's, I would say that's another positive about what they've done here. Yeah. So Eric, a couple, couple uh, things I, I like, and I'd add on to, um, I, the, the positive side, because uh, I thought we were doing bad and ugly first and saving the good for the end. But Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, but that, no, that, that's perfectly fine. Oh, but I've got I, a lot I, more bad and ugly, so the, we can go there. No, no, but no, let's go, let's go in, in either direction. I completely agree with what you said on the bonds. Uh, I like the shorter duration. The risk-adjusted return on this portfolio is actually pretty good uh, overall when you look at almost in any of the uh, time periods we mentioned. Uh, another uh, point, though, just from what you said. Before you leave that point, the, were you using the Sharpe ratio as one indication of that? I was using that as one indication, Okay, yes. so for our listeners, the Sharpe ratio, in the simplest terms, is a comparison of risk 
or pardon me, the reward adjusted for the amount of risk that was accepted in order to obtain that reward. In other, so it, there's a formula. I won't get into the long formula, but it's it's risk adjusted reward. And in this case, the risk adjusted rewards. If you were to pick let's say 100 portfolios, you would ideally be looking for risk-adjusted returns that are closer to the area of this particular portfolio than many other candidates. But I, here's, here's what I would say isn't necessarily a point of credit to the, the designers of this portfolio, Roshan, and that is if you happened to concentrate all of your assets as they've done in the asset class that has had these abnormally high risk-adjusted returns over a defined period of time, in this case, they're three, five, and 10-year periods, you better have comparable sharp ratios. In fact, in, in terms of the sharp ratios really don't differ from those at all of an, a portfolio that's 80% S&P and 20% aggregate bond. Hold on, hold on. For this, this, the sharp ratio for an 80% S&P and 20% aggregate bond is better first of all and it's 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 actually pretty significantly better so that i, I was getting on to my negative the risk adjusted oh, return okay. on right. this risk adjusted return is decent but exactly like you said it's skewed i got to my conclusion differently though uh so okay. the way i got to my conclusion about it being being skewed is that if you look at the alpha how much is the portfolio doing to outperform it's declining over time so this portfolio could uh, and it, it's it's almost exactly what you said, but as I, I took a different path to get there, this portfolio could have just got lucky in the short term. So now that's affecting the the risk adjusted return in the short and long term, because if you look at it over time, the outperformance is, has is eroding. So the alpha goes from 1.04 down to 0.29, which means yeah, the portfolio has done great over three years. One year of which last year where the NASDAQ absolutely crushed it with the pandemic and everyone, you know, the, the whole stay at home, work from home stock trades that they have a lot, they have a lot in. So um, I find it interesting we came to the same conclusion, but I had a, a completely different path. One other note on your stock, though, where you had said not having too much in one portfolio, one holding is, is a good thing. And Microsoft was at four. It's worth noting that they got to four percent on Microsoft through two different um, investment funds they have. So I, I do wonder whether that was uh, in. Is that four percent intentional or is that four percent? That's that was my thought. It's accidental. They, exactly. So I, I thought it just kind of it just kind of got there. So um, what I what I question with this going back to a while ago when I said would it be better to just have the S and P the S and P five hundred versus these holdings? Well, in the long run, the data says yes for sure. In the short run, it says no. Short run being three years, long run being either five or ten, because that's the data we have. Uh, so, I I do uh, I do question whether there is a better way to do this, a more efficient way to do this. And the portfolio you described, eighty percent S and P, twenty percent. Um, you had said aggregate bonds. Now I'm using the twenty year treasuries, but that eighty twenty uh, portfolio with the twenty year treasuries does have a significantly better risk-adjusted return. And that's the portfolio I compared earlier where I said you can cut your risk by about, uh, you can have a 30% drop in risk with only a 5% drop in return. And remember, that's not a 5% lower return. 
that's a 0.8% lower return. All right. Well, uh, I, we can talk about that some more, or I've got some more bad and ugly if you want to pre- do, save the best for last uh, in terms of the, uh, the good. No, well, no, you can, you can continue on. There, there is one other, one other um, point I would, I would just like to make on the um, uh, report of how much exposure they have to an individual stock. And uh, just, to get, just to get a little bit of opinion and thought on it. Now, uh, here's what I always struggle with. Financial planning world, I remember when I was looking at this, the, the general rule was you want to be below 5% in any position, right? Then you've got the investment management world, and I'm constantly talking about how I'm such a Buffett fan, where his uh, track record and performance is based on a, more of a concentrated equity portfolio. And there are many things he did different from Benjamin Graham. That was one of them that they, they think made a, a, pretty, a pretty big difference. So um, accumulation phase versus distribution phase makes a difference. Risk tolerance makes a difference. All your other assets make, make a difference. But the, the question I'm, I'm leading to is, um, is, it necess- is that rule of, of capping the portfolio, how, does, how relevant is that to this person? Yeah. Well, all right. So I think if you and I each took an assessment of our sort of prognostication about the fate of Microsoft, the two of us would probably, I think, agree Microsoft doesn't seem like it's in grave jeopardy of a sudden, you know, collapse at any time soon. So, so we could have this conversation if, if we wanted to. And, you know, one line of approach to this conversation would be to say, well, let's take a look at the individual holdings and ask realistically, is a position that's above four or 5% truly proposing a, a company-specific risk that's unacceptable at the portfolio level? And I think we might say on that basis, yeah, with, the th- with something like Microsoft, probably not. But well, I- uh, to interrupt you, that's the, the point is what, what is the company, right? Like, like it's, it's exactly what you said. I just wanna make it a little more clear. If you have, all, if you have over the percentage, uh, the general rule percentage of 5% in a, in a Microsoft, that's less risky than having like that overall, I can't even think of a company that's not, but a penny stock, right? Or, you know, or something like that. It makes a difference what it is. GameStop. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that's true. Although the people who bought it for under 10 bucks a share are still pretty happy right now. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. Well, uh, Roche, I'm curious, does this also have to do with uh, correlation where you say you don't want to have more than 5%, but what's, let's just say you own like companies like that basically do the same, like their competitors. I mean, you technically don't own 5% of one company, but you're in pretty much all the other ones that competing with them. So you basically are in a way where you're highly correlated in one area. Yeah, so there are definitely multiple studies on this where you look at diversification and eliminating individual company risk. And, uh, and the more stocks you have, the uh, less the same sector matters, according to the study, right? But uh, I always question some of these things because you've got to uh, look at what's going on in the real world as well. So if you end up with 100% of your portfolio in tech, but you've got you know 50 different stocks you're probably in for a lot of volatility and can you stomach that so anyway coming back to the question of concentration in in particular stocks I, another way of looking at it though i would just say is part of that assessment of a company and the company specific risk is i, I would say 
subjective. It, it, it's, it is, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say we are dealing with some degree of the unknown because that has to do with the future. And so if you're saying, I will, I'm willing to accept risk in my portfolio, but I want to know what the nature of the risk is, then one way of mitigating at least the company-specific risk, and you'll still be subject to industry-specific risk, you'll still be subject to market, broad eco- economic, you know, the economy, both domestically and globally, you'll be subject to those risks, you'll be subject to monetary policy risk, you can be subject to regulatory risk, you can have all these other risks, but this is one over which just by keeping a, a sort of limit, some sort of upper, just using a rule of thumb on individual positions in your portfolio, I think you do yourself a favor in that you, you at least limit the risk related to the company-specific risk. So there, and that's one thing. I guess what I would just observe about this portfolio, though, is <clears throat> in terms of the, the concentration, you, you and I, I think, both think in terms less of company selection and, or for that matter, even manager selection. And we think more in terms of, of factor selection. I think even you now, even more so than I, I mean, I have some, I've, we've talked about this in the past. I'm not promoting these. I'm just mentioning this as just to validate the point I'm attempting to make here is, is that I have a number of multi-factor stock strategies and multi-factor um, multi-factor ETF strategy that are essentially momentum, value, quality, volatility, using, using those sorts of factors, size, etc. I, I would say what I'm instead looking for is to tap the, tap the underlying attributes as opposed to the companies themselves. And on that basis, I would say it's not evident to me that the, in this particular portfolio, they have tapped some of the most advantageous factors other than, other than momentum. They, there's a lot of momentum built into this portfolio. Now, um, are, are you, going back to that Microsoft question, do you think that that's intentional or coincidental? I do see the momentum in there, but to me it looks like they've just picked two funds slash uh, SMA accounts that are uh, pretty big parts of the portfolio that are both growth oriented. Like the two biggest part of the por- portfolio, uh, and by two biggest, I mean 60%, you've only got a 70% in, in uh, I'm sorry, you've got 80% in stocks, 60% of which are in two funds that are essentially doing almost the same thing. Right, you, when you say precisely right, I've got, I've got 80% of my portfolio in stocks and two th- and three quarters of that part is in the hands of two asset managers. And right. And One, those, and those yeah. two. So I believe those, I, I see your point that the stocks are momentum driven because I think that's what those two asset managers are doing. The, but the point I'm making is I don't think they were going after the momentum. And if they weren't intentionally going after the momentum to me, that's an ugly, you don't want to fall into something like that by accident. Okay, I think that's a good point. I would say, I, I also agree that it's ugly. I would just reach a slightly different conclusion, I think, about the, the uh, responsibility that I would assign to the managers who picked the asset managers, or the advisors, that is to say the client-facing relationship, um, the relationship managers in picking these others. Why, really, why would you put 60% of the, 60% of the portfolio and 75% of the stock portion of the portfolio in the hands of these two people 
it looks to me as though the philosophy of this particular team is we have to ride the hot hand, not we have to diversify. And so the hot hand are the strong managers who have been riding the wave of large cap U.S. and particularly riding the hand of large cap U.S. tech as as their primary source of of return. And we're just going to go with that and keep our fingers crossed and hope that that leads to a good outcome for our client. And if it doesn't, well, okay, next. And, and actually, going back to our risk and return statistics, you see that there, right? That's why you're seeing such uh, uh, the short-term alpha is good, the short-term risk-adjusted return is good, but the longer term you go, the worse it gets because these hot hands have been particularly hot between uh, you know March of 2020 till December of 2020, right? Compare, compared to to the other area. So when, when you have more of a long-term time frame, it gets smoothed out and then you have a portfolio that, that is slightly, slightly underperforming versus the short-term outperformance. So I was saying in terms of the factor selection, and you and I have, have talked about factor-based investing, and maybe we should do an episode just on factors and talking about the various factors. But one of the things I would say to their credit Again, I think this is accidental on the part of the relationship managers and maybe accidental on the part of the underlying asset managers. But the pieces that they've included in their portfolios on balance are of higher quality, I would say, than those in the S&P 500, broadly speaking. So in that sense, I, I praise the portfolio for the quality piece. On the other hand, I would say uh, uh, what I believe is an even more and powerful long-term factor, which is value, I would say they've done actually just the opposite. And the, the, the valuation metrics for this portfolio, whether we're talking about price to earnings, price to book, price to, to sales, price to cash flow, on every one of those, this portfolio suffers in comparison to the S&P and, so, and would even more suffer in comparison with if you looked at a much more truly diversified portfolio that included international and included more small, you know, then it would look grossly uh, that they were grossly overpriced on the selection of the underlying securities. I, 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 can, I can definitely see that on there, although um, uh, those two things, um, I guess I'd almost take for granted, but you know, when you're all in tech, you know your 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 metrics from a uh, price to earnings, price to book, price to sales. You know those are all going to be huge numbers, right? So, it's it's uh, it, my criticism isn't to to those underlying metrics because I I would say those are almost a given, but they're definitely worth pointing out. Don't get me wrong, I'm probably taking it uh, as too much of a given, uh, but when we say that how heavily they're concentrated in momentum in tech. I mean, that's, that's, where, that's where you end up. I think some of our listeners might reasonably be asking, well, wait a second, why are you guys so bent about the diversification if they're getting good returns? You know, if they're, if they're seeing a healthy growth in the portfolio, why, why is that an issue? And I would say, hey, I'm delighted that the client has had some good returns over the recent past. And oh, by the way, you know, as we're having this conversation, we are working from the assumption that these positions have been in part of this portfolio for a relatively long period. 
to, in truth, we don't know that. I mean, it might be that these were selected actually last year in the wake of uh, a, a good performance coming out of the bottoming process after COVID, the, the COVID-19 decline. But so it, on that level, we're working from a, an assumption here rather than specific knowledge. But I, but I guess I would say, think about what Wayne, Wayne Gretzky had said about how he plays, which is he doesn't go where the puck is. He goes where the puck will be. I'm not saying it quite as elegantly, I think, as he said it, but that's what he's trying to do is to anticipate where the puck would be. And so for those of us, myself included, who would say it's useful to have diversification into categories that ne haven't necessarily been the hot categories lately, that's in part because we understand that different parts of the world, U.S. versus domestic, large versus small, value versus growth, although listen to our value versus growth episode to hear more about our thinking of that particular contrast. When sometimes you say, well, growth in large U.S. has been working, let's just stay with that. And I would say, mm, you, you could, but at the same time, you might want to just say, is that where the puck is going? Or is it perhaps the case that precisely because some of those non-large U.S. positions have not performed as well recently, that there is an above, you know, better than even chance that those will be precisely the categories that perform, that, that are the outperformers in the next phase. And if that's the case, do you or do you not want to have some part of your portfolio in place in those positions now ready to catch them as soon as they as they begin their in relative terms at least begin their period of outperformance thoughts well i'll tell you um what you just described is why i'll use factors or i like to to use the term i like to diversify the thought process because uh and when i say diversify the thought process uh, processes i like managers who will where we'll invest where they'll look at what they think is the hot sector and assume it'll continue at the same time i like managers who will say well no it's been too hot we need to shift over using these different thought processes within your portfolio i i think puts an added level of diversification and gives you more consistency and as we are planners uh financial planners consistency is very important so going back to what you'd said, I would not want to concentrate everything I had into just that one way of thinking. And you had mentioned factor-based in investing, looking at these different factors I think are important. So when I had uh, looked at this um, uh, portfolio and come up with, with my own, I had five different thought processes of investing included in this portfolio. And I think this portfolio is just one. Well, they're the ones that I, that I typically use. I'll give the brief summary. One is the modern portfolio theory, but I do make adjustments to it based on uh, business cycle and markets. The second is using momentum. The third is using a technical. The fourth is a pure value stock uh, play. The fifth is an opportunity stock play where we try to go where the puck is headed with that one. But, uh, you know, as using that that Wayne Gretzky quote go where the puck is headed I totally agree sometimes it doesn't go where he was thinking right which is why you've got to you've got to have these other parts to your portfolio so when when I look at this this to me is a risky portfolio heavily concentrated in one place so 
is that what the investor wants? And when I say heavily concentrated in one place, that's that large cap growth slash momentum place to, uh, to which I would have um, and the allocation I came up with, I'd have I actually had 15.33% into a similar place like this, which means I had 85% in other stuff. Right. So I, I I would not be a fan of putting it all in in one in one area. This reminds me very much of um, of um, when I started in the business, the allocation they had used and how I was what I was trained to use um uh, initially but i learned through experience with what the markets have have done that it's not something i feel comfortable doing you end up riding waves up and down uh versus having consistency and you end up being wrong uh, you know being wrong more often than i'd like to be right in a, in a portfolio like this so it just it just reminded me of um of a standard stock off the shelf portfolio and with too much in growth, once again, I started in during the I started in uh, 2000 when before the before the crash and people were always putting too much in growth back then. And that's what I was trained to do. My manager had only worked in a growth market and to them diversification by uh, large cap, mid cap and small cap just meant three growth funds with different names. So yeah, so that 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 might be why I'm I'm a little bit more harsh on this. It just it just it just it just seems unnecessarily too risky and um, and almost to the point of mailing it in. Sorry, I, my apologies. Didn't mean to be so harsh. This guy's well, gonna meet we, me outside my office today instead of you. If we bottom line it, I would say I agree. It does feel like it is a roll of the dice on the part of these uh, these advisors who are betting on what's worked to continue to work. Maybe it's been built on present, making a pres, presenting to the client a portfolio that at the time they introduced it, which incidentally I believe was four years ago. So that's when that relationship began. And by the way, you might be saying, why, why is the client talking to you? The performance in this portfolio has been relatively appealing. And it's because they don't do any real planning. And so the client is looking for planning now, not just investment uh, investment management. So, but my, my my coming back to this point, it's conceivable that they presented this portfolio at the time, thinking, okay, well, this is what's been working, and they've just been crossing their fingers <laughs> that it would work, and it has, it has worked in these last four years. Or it's possible they showed him something else four years ago, and then have gradually rotated over this over to this coming out of the COVID process. You know, well, I'll, that's something that I'll find out w when I have the follow-up conversation with this portfolio, this this particular um, prospective client. But the bottom line, I would say, is is that this does look to me, but to me, more like gambling than a rational, disciplined approach to portfolio diversification and portfolio management. Yeah. I when you mentioned why they came to you for planning, it reminded me of another Buffett quote. He had said, there's no there's no value without growth. If you're gonna invest in something with value, you need that company to grow. I also think, and I am a planner, so think of my perspective, but I also think there's, there's really no investing without planning because you can do a better job. Um, uh, we've talked about so many things that come to mind with this, but most recently what's top of mind for me is when you take your social security, when, whether you do Roth conversions, all these answer thing, questions like this, how much income you need every year, what you need from the portfolio, all those planning questions play a role in how you invest. 
So I really think you need you need you need both, and that you can come up with a superior superior plan. You mentioned this has done well for the last uh, three years and so on. Well, uh, or four years, you had said the data says it's done well for three. I bet if I had annual numbers to uh, to really do a good job of comparing, it's done really well for one, and I bet it was average for the for for at least one of those three, maybe two. And when you look at the five year data, it is ever so slightly, but underperforming. Right. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it's it's uh. It, I'm sure if we had the person who put this together talk to us, they'd have their reasons they like it. So everyone well, can so think here's different. What I, that's okay. Yeah, that's true. And so what I'll be doing is in presenting an alternative, and it have and it'll be to have an exploratory conversation with this client is to say first and foremost we're we're going to talk about planning, but you've also asked me about the asset management piece. And so what I would be doing if you're thinking that this this level of growth ambition, namely 80% allocated to growth pieces, certainly stocks. If you think that that's a good match with you, great. If you don't, let's do it. You know, of course, we're going to do a risk tolerance assessment and maybe we wind up dialing it down. But as a starting point, assuming that this has been a good fit for you for, from a risk tolerance standpoint, the first thing I'll be doing is to opening up the aperture here a bit and saying instead of just having six or seven fund managers separately managed accounts as well as one or two mutual funds what we'll do here is go to 30 different uh, tools we'll also have instead of 80 percent of the portfolio that's in stocks be entirely in the u.s there's literally 0.16 percent of the portfolio is in emerging markets and 0.8 percent of the portfolio is outside the united states i mean we're talking about one percent is in international i'll be looking at it and saying hey let's let's have a conversation here about roughly the following of the 80 percent that's in stock 45 percent you know, or the the 80 percent that's stock about 45 percent us and about 35 percent international and a good portion of that in emerging markets also instead of it being overwhelmingly focused in gr the growth side let's spread a bet the bets around into large growth large uh, value small growth small value the mids the same let's have a presence in all of these other places so that given the unpredictability at times of which will be the hot hand you won't be saying oh we missed it you'll have some assets that are there already and on the bond side, while on the one hand, I did praise that they're using shorter durations and I praise that they're using higher quality. The downside of what I've just said is that the, the yield on, those, on the bond portion of this portfolio is extremely low. And so what I'll also be suggesting is, is that, again, out of primarily risk reward, that, they can, that the client consider augmenting this the, within the bond sleeve, at least, having some portion allocated not just to high-grade corporates and governments in the U.S., but also reaching out into some um, what we would call high-yield bonds, as well as into some international bonds. Specifically, in my case, I'll be recommending emerging market bonds as part, to, as part of that allocation. So, you know, for what it's worth, I've, ta we've, I've taken a lot of shots at this portfolio and for that matter, tried to acknowledge the places where I think there are strengths, but I didn't want to leave this conversation without 
answering the question that might, must be in listeners' minds. So you've been great at bashing. What are you going to do as an alternative? There is what I'm proposing as my alternative. Yeah, and as I mentioned, I, w- I won't go into as much depth with it, but some of those holdings you had mentioned, most of them actually uh, exist in the uh, portfolios I would look at. The one area where I do differ a little bit in um, in what you said is just international has just in general done so poorly for so long that I'm looking for a little bit of more life in there before I shift over to it. But I, I at the same time, I wouldn't have a problem with you adding a small portion over to it just for that level of diversification. I would say coming out of the bottoming process in 2000, in March of 2020, you've seen international, at least maybe until very, very recently, international has been performing quite respectably relative to the large U.S. stock market. The, the overall winner has been small, small U.S., and uh, in mid US, mid cap US, but uh, I would say you know maybe that turning point has come, Roshan. And again, it, my thinking is is rather than trying to outsmart it, do as we I mentioned earlier about Gretzky and go where you think the puck will be going, or at least have a presence so that if it does go there, you it's maybe more of a zone defense than what do we call it one on one. Well, and it could it could be there, and it, and it could start, but like over the last year, well, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know that the puck's headed there yet. I need to see more, for for me, just because it it is still it's done better relative to itself in the last what it's done previously in the last year, but it's still significantly underperformed the U.S. in the last year. Yeah, I'll have to go look at my charts again because I do look at them almost daily, and the, at least the one-year look back it has been pretty close. I'm I'm using um, EFA right now as the ETF to compare, and that one-year performance is uh, 23.55 versus 35.86 for the S and P, and 40.89 for the Nasdaq. Well, if and you I say just, the Nasdaq, I would say yeah, that's certainly. A well, difference. I mean, it's even with the S and P, it's twelve percent below in the last year. That's a significant. Well, I have to pull, difference. Pull up my chart. So, in fact, if you want, you keep talking, and I'll bring up my charts, and I'll I'll tell you well, what I've been looking at. I would I would say let's uh, let's save that for next time, just because we're well over an hour already. All right, that sounds fine. I would love the answer. The other thing, also, I'll say that is uh, is going to make my. The no, I just picked indexes just to quickly get the answer to it. But if you did specific funds that you used, or if you look at things that did currency hedging as well, I think it would be a totally different outcome. Yes, but I'd be interested to interested to see that. But that that's uh, that's I just picked the indexes because it's easy and I know the symbols off the top of my head. Okay, but we will, Eric. That will, if you don't mind, that'll be your homework for next time. All right, that sounds good. That'll be interesting to talk about as well to see the difference in index versus managed in that in that uh, sector or in the international space in general. All right, Adrian, you didn't have to break up many fights today. Yeah, Roshan, we haven't even talked about your birthday. What was the good, the bad, the funny? The good, the bad, and the funny. I'm trying to think. I I, I had fun. It was. Uh, uh, what did I do? I. Uh, I went to the kids were in camp, so I went to breakfast by myself. I did do some work <laughs> at breakfast, though. And then uh, they, my daughter was out at 12, so I told her I'll take her anywhere she wants. This might be the funny. I said, I'll take you anywhere you want for lunch. She, of course, picked Chipotle. 
And when we get to Chipotle, she said, you know, it'll be really fun if you take out your phone and we watch a movie while we eat lunch. <laughs> so I thought I'd hang out with her, but we just watched a movie together for about 20 minutes until she finished eating. Uh, hung out with the family. It was a fun, it was a fun weekend. Uh, so not only birthday was on Thursday, but the weekend was nice as well. That's great. The funny, my basketball team lo lost. I was our leading scorer. That's the good. The bad is we lost... The bad is we lost by roughly 20 points. The ugly is they had one player that outscored our entire team. There you go. One thing from a basketball game with all three. <laughs> that was Sunday. But that was fun overall. Thanks for asking. All right. Well, listen. We're off till next week. Yes, we are. So I just want to say to our listeners, you know, you, we tried to respond here recently to some things that we we thought you would be you know, very interested in based on some of the comments that you've made to us. And so we hope this is certainly in that category. But whether or not this particular topic was, I suppose you're not listening to this point if it wasn't. But anyway, if you know, it, it is the case for you that you found this valuable, we do ask you to reach out to us with questions because those are great prompts for us and when we are doing our topic planning sessions. On top of that, you've heard us highlight one other aspect of this, which is the importance of planning. This is the reason that, in fact, we had this portfolio to evaluate today was in part because this client said, look, I'm not getting planning from my advisors. If you are in that situation, you have an advisor, you're getting asset management, but little else, it's, it's probably time for you to have a conversation with somebody who actually does planning. And that if on the basis of what you've heard us say, it sounds like we might be good candidates for that. We, we'd ask that you reach out to us. You can find our contact information in the show notes. At the podcast level, though, if you do, if you're enjoying what we're doing, please go to your favorite podcast app, whether that's Apple, Spotify, you name it, and give us a rating. And a comment will help too, especially if it's a five star and it's a good comment. That will help us immensely. It will help other people find the show. And in the final analysis, if this is valuable, we want people to benefit from it. Anything further, gentlemen? That is perfect. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither RTA Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of RTA Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through RTA Wealth Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. 
and securities through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.